some of your collaborations on a Wednesday afternoon. Little Daft Punk, Pharrell Williams. You know who's in studio? One of our collaborations when it comes to all things foreign affairs. Dr. Thomas Ambrosio, political science professor at NDCU. I tried. Was that a good segue? That's a great okay, segue. Well, there I we tried. go. Uh, welcome back. Yeah, I'm wearing a helmet like Daft Punk as well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I noticed you were getting down to the song. Yeah, fan. There we go. There we go. I like that. It, what do you think about a musical collaboration? Does, uh, does somebody music, stand out? A musical about international politics. Yes. I'll try that. Okay, yeah. I do occasionally have music in class. Um, oh. uh, me... You actually show the Right Here, Right Now video oh. talking about the end of the Cold War. Because students today have no idea. Oh, how dare they? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I would have thought right away, Billy Joel, we didn't start the fire. Is that one that you play? I don't play that. That'd be a good one, though, because okay. the whole Cold War. Uh, we, we could do a, like, if there was ever something that needed a part two, it's that song. Oh, gosh. Yeah, do know. an update with everything. That Billy. would be interesting, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, I don't even know where you'd begin. <laughs> I know where I want to begin one year ago on Friday. So we had you know, a bunch of variety of things, but it was a year ago that Russia invaded. And yeah. here we are. It's already been a year. It's already been a year. It's gone by quickly, but also, um, you know, for those people who obviously are in Ukraine, mm-hmm. it's been worst year of their life. Right. Uh, but but more than that, it is a year that's kind of like something we haven't seen in a very long time. Obviously, we haven't seen you know, those of us who grew up, like myself, an old guy who grew up during the Cold War. Um, we were kind of that '80s nostalgia is back. I guess mm-hmm. we're kind of back into a Cold War. We're back in the proxy wars against great powers, and we're back into nuclear brinksmanship. Well, and some of that escalated this week, marking kind of that one year. Um, when you have Vladimir Putin, I think, pulling out of the, the last treaty that we had when it comes to nuclear arms because President Biden was next door. Yes. Things escalated a little bit. Yes, yes. So um, this was the New START agreement. Uh, so throughout the Cold War, we had a series of agreements with the Soviet Union to limit nuclear weapons, uh, to, to restrict uh, their potential use to restrict some of their um, delivery uh, devices, mm-hmm. but this is kind of the last one that's gone, gone that was still there, but that's kind of gone away now. Uh, shows that we we don't really have this institutional framework now mm-hmm. between us and Russia that we had developed throughout the Cold War. Even at the worst of our competition, we still had some things that we can compartmentalize, we could work on. Those days right now seem to be over, at least for the, the foreseeable future. I'm going to put that down in one of the – I've got like three questions that I think are so broad that we can talk for hours even though we don't have hours. <laughs> uh, you know, it was known a year ago that this was going to be like a 10-day thing and it was going to be over. Exactly. Or, you know, and now here we are a year later. And uh, what's changed as far as we were wrong in that first early intelligence because a year later they're still fighting? Well, no one expected the Russians to do this poorly. Even if the Ukrainians, even if we expect the Ukrainians to show the bravery that they have shown, no one expected the Russians to, to act this poor, to, to, to be this bad and incompetent in terms of their uh, military equipment as well as their tactics and then also their troops. And part of this had to do with the way in which they went about invading Ukraine, which that kind of gets into the weeds, but let's just say they bit off a lot more than they could chew. Also, we had built up kind of the bear for so long in our brains. And, of course, they had their problems during the 90s and into the 2000s in their separate wars. 
domestically and also into Georgia. And I think we had this idea that Russia was like the Soviet mm-hmm. model. And obviously they were not. So that that's part of the story uh, that we really thought, you know, within two weeks to be Russian tanks rolling through Kiev. Yeah. And, and now what we're seeing is a year in, and it's just this grind. It looks far more like World War One in terms of trench warfare than the lightning strikes of World War II and the vast movements of, of troops. The uh, yeah, So obviously on that one side of that equation, we, as you said, hyped up this bear that turns out not to be the case. And I think we must not have given much uh, uh, credit where credit is now due when it comes to the Ukrainian people fighting for their own country Absolutely. and way of life there. Because, I mean, they're fighting like hell. And, I mean, now I think what's changed is – Maybe what, how NATO is actually working together is, is that maybe another takeaway. And that after is this the other year? huge thing is that Vladimir Putin expected a response like he had gotten in the previous conflicts, like the um, invasion of Georgia in 2008, like the war in 2014, or the annexation of Crimea, the war in eastern Ukraine. He expected to be the divided West. And what is remarkable is that the West is as united now as it was at the height of the Cold War. And in fact, at many points in a Cold War, we weren't as united as really? we were. And I don't think, certainly he did not expect the level of material that we are sending to the Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. At almost every stage, we've said, maybe not to you in terms of, of weapon systems. And then, and then very quickly, we broke down and said yes. And at this point, we are sending them pretty much almost everything they can need. Um, and that does not seem to be ending anytime soon. And part of President Biden's trip to Ukraine was to shore up support in the United States and also in Europe. Well, and I'll just ask you, grade that. It was a success? Him going over there delivering that speech, I know there were some criticisms. Of course, everything's criticized on, on partisan politics in America. But globally and domestically, what was that surprise visit to Kiev a success or not? I think it was, I'm not sure it's going to change things domestically because members of Congress, at least the leadership, tends to be pretty pro-Ukraine, especially um, uh, in the Senate. Yeah. McConnell, even Republicans. There's a little more questioning uh, in, in the House of Representatives amongst Republicans. But I, I think that it, it doesn't shore that up as much as shoring up the Western alliance. I think that's probably where things were more impactful to basically say, look, we still have to be committed to this war. The There is a weakening of support in, in the United States uh, for this kind of open book or uh, open checkbook policy towards mm-hmm. Ukraine, but more so in Europe. And I think that's probably what it was. I mean, in terms of the optics, in terms of, of that, uh, it was a success. It, he's going to have some issues coming mm-hmm. back home, um, you know, uh, Probably the, expected. Well, go, expected. Yeah. I mean, yeah. going, you know, kind of going to Kiev, but not to East Palestine is probably uh, probably a mistake. Well, and uh, but, for for some of the other members of the cabinet that probably could have been to East Palestine, that, a that little could have at least done that yeah. and to take some of the, the, the yeah the, yeah, the, the take some of the hit. But still, uh-huh. I, I think it was pretty successful mm-hmm. and shows uh, is real symbolic. And then to have uh, Putin's speech, uh, which was a very interesting read. A very long, and the first third of it's kind of worth reading, I think, to kind of give this almost manic view of the West, which had been building throughout Putin's speeches ever since 2007. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
uh, and then to see Biden's speech in Poland and a very uh, these contrasting speeches and, and right. we're kind of back to this Cold War imagery. Yeah, that that West versus us. They brought us into this. They're the ones that started this, not us as far as Russia goes. Right, kind of living in different realities. Very different yeah. realities and uh, very much drawing lines. Mm-hmm. And that's probably both speeches really drew very sharp lines between us and them. And and ultimately, from their perspective, them and us. You got more time for me? I got to get a weather yeah, update. Dr. Thomas Ambrosio is my guest, political science professor at North Dakota State University. California. Such a good song. Imagine in a two-door... Red Dodge Avenger. Factory speakers. I couldn't afford the big ones. You didn't have the 15-inch stub in the back? Me in a gravel road. Rural Benson County. But you did have the buddy with the subs, and everybody heard you guys coming down that gravel road. Yeah, all of us Leeds boys. It's a whole other topic of conversation. I want to get back into the conversation I'm having with a friend of the show here, Dr. Thomas Ambrosio, North Dakota State University. And, uh, Doctor, we got some um, questions that were sent into the Adventure RV Text Club at 35270. Uh, Tyler, can you please ask uh, Dr. Ambrosio what he thinks about the money Japan has pledged to Ukraine? Yeah, this is actually pretty significant, and it shows that um, there is a. it's not just about European security. Of course, Russia and Japan have issues. There's actually disputed islands and an unresolved conflict from 1945 which is kind of fascinating wow. that they still haven't resolved yeah. all their territorial disputes. But it just shows that there's kind of this larger democracies realizing that they are on one side of the aisle, and then you have the authoritarian countries on the other. And it also connects to a larger theme that's going on now, which we're not really all that, uh, certainly not very prominent in the news, is that Japan is rearming. And they're rearming because they realize China is a problem. And, of course, China and Russia are allies. And, in fact, President Xi of China is going to Moscow. Uh, and we'll see how that all shakes out as well. That's actually on my list, and it's on the minds of another text uh, oh, club member here. Uh, Tyler Doctor, does Putin politically survive this Ukraine war? That's the first question. Second one is, what does the U.S. do if the PRC starts supplying weaponry and supplies to Russia? Yeah, two excellent questions. Putin, one thing is that... Um, dictators are almost never overthrown by their people. They're always overthrown by elites that surround them. Those are the ones who actually have real power. The people tend not to have really any real power, except in very unusual circumstances. Putin will probably cannot survive a defeat, a true defeat, but he can survive a grind. Mm-hmm. And without an alternative to him, and there is no real alternative to him because he's very good at making sure there isn't. People are uh, falling out of windows frequently over there. Well, yes, that's another issue that okay, we have a lot of people one? who have problem with gravity as well. Um, but there's no one who could replace Putin. And even if someone did replace Putin, it's very likely the war would continue because it would probably be from his inner circle. They don't want to be seen as the ones who abandoned Russia. And, you know, Putin probably will survive uh, as long as, as he can for a while. Though, again, revolutions happen um, by surprise, obviously. And, yeah, so there has been an issue of a lot of people falling out of buildings or uh, just, you know, falling uh, uh, to their deaths. And there was recently someone who was in charge of essentially where the money went for the Western Military District, which is the one that did the worst. 
in the initial invasion of Ukraine, and probably the, she knew where the money had actually gone, and, well, she had to, well, meet, meet an uncertain or uh, unfortunate fate with the ground. Yeah. Um, in terms of China, this is going to be the big issue. China has been wary of what we call secondary sanctions, which is we have sanctions on Russia, but if countries do certain types of business with Russia, we'll put sanctions on them. Mm-hmm. Right now, China has been very careful about not crossing that line because they realize they have enough economic problems, enough political problems. They don't want to go down that road. There is some intelligence information that the, the U.S. Has, has leaked in order to kind of warn China that if you start giving lethal aid to Russia, then you're going to be hit with these sanctions. If that happens and we start getting into more than just a trade war that we're currently in with China, we're going to see a real disruption of the, of the economic uh, system mm-hmm. of, the, of the globe, and we're going to have that impacted right here at home. You think supply lines are a pro- supply chains are a problem now? Imagine what it would be like with real sanctions on China and their inability to transfer money back and forth, and that's really where our lever is. You know what's interesting about that? Because I asked the question a year ago now with, uh, you know, if uh, we do an oil ban from, from Russia, if listeners would be fine with paying more at the pump. They were for a while, for it a felt while. like. And then all of a sudden they, we saw stickers on gas pumps uh, with the current president saying he did that, which silly, stupid. I can't believe you wasted your money on that. I'm not going to pull you into that, doctor. But uh, the same, I think, would uh, question comes to my mind, and I, I suspect the answer is probably not going to be as, yep, let's go do this. If you're willing to pay more or wait longer if that supply chain is disrupted because of how much we rely on China for products. Exactly. I imagine probably not. Probably not, and it's going to be a real issue. And then it, it will further reinforce this new Cold War, true Cold War 2.0, with the you know, Russia and China on one side, America, the West, and its other non-Western democracy mm-hmm. allies or democratic allies on the other. Spy balloon. How does <laughs> that, you know, that happened, what, three weeks ago, <laughs> right before this visit of our president, China's president, to this war-torn part of the world? Just a coincidence? Um, we're spying on each other all the oh, time. Correct, yeah. And uh, But a balloon. I, uh, it just reinforces this idea that we are in a cold, certainly a cold war with China, and it's one that's developing. And the problem I see with the whole spy balloon is that we don't seem to have any barriers between the two of us in the sense that here's what we lines we will not cross. What lines will you not cross? What lines will we not cross? There doesn't seem to be that communication. Whereas during the Cold War, we had these kind of lines, especially it took some time to work all those out. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, we, we were able to deal with each other. Right now, we're still in that early stages with, with China. China. Give me more time. A little bit more time. Just yeah. a little bit. Okay. Because I just said there's one question about the, the Minsk agreement, and uh, I need to ask about war crimes and, and genocide because that term has been thrown out there. Just a little bit more time with Dr. Thomas Ambrosio. More questions coming in. We'll get to those right after KFGO News. Can't nobody tell me We play bump songs that kind of go with the topic. It's tough to find collaboration songs that match world events like what's going on in Ukraine uh, right now. Um, Dr. Thomas Ambrosio is my guest because on Friday it's uh, one year 
since uh, Russia invaded. And uh, there's a question that I want to get to in the text club, and then there's two terms that have been thrown on that I want to ask you about before I let you go because I've taken more of your time. Sure. Uh, Tyler, can you ask you if the, the Minsk – am I saying – Minsk. Minsk. God, I even asked you. <laughs> Minsk. There I go. I'll just repeat it one more time. The Minsk agreement was honored. Would we even be talking about this war? Right. The Minsk agreement was an attempt by um, Belarus, actually, which hosted the uh, the talks between Russia and Belarus or Russia and Ukraine back when Belarus was trying to be kind of more more of a neutral uh, actor in all this to try to resolve the war that's been going on since 2014. This is really an ongoing war. Uh, the one that started last year, the war really started in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea and uh, intervened in eastern Ukraine. To try to resolve that, to give the Russian speakers of eastern Ukraine autonomy in return for an end of the war, an end of Russian involvement, and a restoration of Ukrainian sovereignty over those areas. But ultimately, it was a dead letter. Um, These are agreements that neither side really meant to uh, fulfill because— the, the, this, the interests are too incompatible, and this is more than just about eastern Ukraine. What's going on with Russia's invasion of Ukraine is really about larger issues of Russian identity and about east-west relations between NATO and Russia. And Ukraine is, is a pawn, or at least um, the vehicle, for both sides to, to ensure their interests. I, and this has been thrown out at the early stages. It's getting thrown out more now. Uh, the words uh, war crimes and genocide. Right. Uh, and I know the, earlier, I mean, somewhere along the year when you and I spoke, I think I'd asked about genocide. And, uh, you know, you had, I think if I recall, I had a pretty strong no. I, that here's right. what's still feel that way. So, so uh, we've long held, there's no question that Russia committed grave human rights abuses, um, has committed war crimes. Uh, Vice President Harris, uh, just at the Munich Security Conference, said that we are convinced that Russia has also committed crimes against humanity, which is a kind of a separate category in particular against civilians. And there is some talk about genocide. Personally, I'm still not fully convinced, though I could easily be convinced that there's certainly some genocidal intent. But at the very least, there's no question that violations of international criminal law have occurred war crimes, crimes against humanity, aggression, genocide. Again, I could probably be convinced on that one, but that's kind of, it has a very, very narrow definition. Uh, so it's been a year. I'm going to stop saying that, but am I going to be talking to you again in six months? I think we could. A year? And I, then what? what's that conversation look like? I think we could schedule it now for a year, quite frankly. Really? Um, I don't see this ending anytime soon. The two sides are too far apart. There is going to be enough resources coming into Ukraine, and Russia will be able to mobilize enough resources to continue this fight for the foreseeable future. Barring any crazy breakthrough diplomatically or um, militarily, we're going to be in this place in a year. The only thing that could dramatically change things is if, for some reason, the United States decided enough is enough and will force Ukraine into some type of a... um, Imperfect peace, we'll put it that way, from Ukraine's perspective. What would lead to that? Uh, there's two things that come to mind. I mean, we are providing a lot of equipment and dipping into reserves. I mean, the other thing that comes to mind is a, a change in election, a change at the head of state. Is that what would lead to that? That's that kind possible. Of That'd agreement? probably be as close as you'd get. Yeah. Um, but even if some Republican other than Trump won, I think we would just continue, continue? our support for okay. Ukraine.
uh, and why? Uh, I mean, is it just Trump, his view on Putin and Russia? Because no, I, I think you're yeah. right. I'm just curious why why you bring I, up I, I this. think Trump is much more, I mean, Trump represents the restrainer, the true restrainer foreign policy, not wanting to get involved overseas, whereas the Republican establishment, even though Trump tried to change it, it still is very much dominated by those who are interventionists. And certainly the left um, is full-blown interventionist, um, kind of liberal interventionism. The only, you know, you have is like Tulsi uh, Gabbard, who, you know, is kind of no longer in the party. Yeah. So, Democratic name only. Democratic we name throw, only, We right. throw that term uh, around so, a lot. So but. I, I think our support will probably continue unless there is some, some sea change somehow. I want to ask about a relationship between Donald Trump and, and Vladimir Putin. I mean, based on just history uh, of other presidencies and certainly the current there was an outlier there in the approach to him as a, I think a head of state as far as Putin. I, I think agree? partly, but I think it was I think it was from a broader place. Um, you know, uh, Trump had always talked about, even going back when he thought about running for president in two thousand, that we need to have a much more peaceful relationship with Russia. And I don't think Putin or Trump was a Russian agent of some sort, but I think he saw that we had more to cooperate or more areas to cooperate. Now, of course, those days have passed, certainly. Uh, at this point, we're talking about Russia as war criminals and mm-hmm. violating you know, international criminal law. Um, it's going to be very hard for us to bring them back into the fold. Sure. Final question I have for you, and listeners can't see because it's radio. I just noticed that you're wearing a sweatshirt. Explain yes. this sweatshirt to me. Um, it's actually, people think it's actually NDSU. It's I, Bice, I did until I looked at it. Not the NDSU it. Bison, but it's actually University of Manitoba Bisons. Uh, they invited me up to a conference actually oh, on NATO God. back uh, back in the day when I, soon after I got here and um, NATO expansion. And, well, here we are. Here we are. Okay. Because at first I'm like, oh, it's just an NDSU. And then I was like, wait a minute here. That's it says right. Bisons. <laughs> Okay, well, I, had I like to confuse people a little uh, bit. It did. It got me off guard there a little bit. Uh, Dr. Ambrosio, I always appreciate the, these conversations. It took way more of your time than what I asked you. Yeah. I'll, I'll try to, to here. keep it tight the next time we chat again in like three months, probably. <laughs> All right. Dr. Thomas Ambrosio, North Dakota State University. He's a political science professor, uh, international law, all that. Messages in at 35270. I will get to those right after this on KFGO. Like seven.